Hello and welcome to Autism in Conversation with Auticon, a podcast from Auticon, a global IT consultancy whose consultants are all autistic. This series is designed to help raise greater understanding and appreciation of autism through fascinating conversations with inspirational guests. Hosted by me, Carrie Grant, MBE. Each episode will feature brilliant guests from all walks of life who each share a passion for making the world more inclusive. We'll be talking about the many benefits of hiring neurodivergent talent through to some of the more common challenges faced by autistic adults navigating the workplace, plus much, much more. All of my four children are neurodivergent, so this is a subject that's very close to my heart, and I'm really looking forward to facilitating some great conversations about autism and hopefully learning some new things along the way. I hope you enjoy. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Autism in Conversation with Auticon. This episode, I'll be having a chat with the celebrated best-selling author and outspoken comic writer, Kathy Lett. Kathy has an inimitable take on serious current issues, and she'll be joining me in a special one-to-one episode where we share our experiences of parenting autistic children. Now, we're doing this particular podcast remotely because Kathy's in Australia. Uh, welcome to the show, Kathy. It's wonderful to have you on. Kathy, what was happening in your life when you came to the point of having children? Were you you were busy working or what was your situation? Oh, I'd fallen in love with a new man and he, he I was just, my the snooze alarm had gone off on my biological clock and it was tick-tock, tick-tock. I was 30 and he, my partner, Jeff, had really wanted children. So it was just a natural thing to do. You know, I think I was pregnant when I got married, three months pregnant. I kept, I was wearing control top pantyhose at the wedding and I thought, oh, I hope <laughs> He doesn't come out with a squashed head. (laughs) So this was your first child, Jules, right? And at what point did you start to think there's something different about this child? Well, it's hard when it's your first child because you've got no benchmark. But and so I didn't. I mean, he never slept, and he was he was really anxious as a baby. And if I left the room, he would be hysterical with anxiety. And and I just thought maybe that was normal. But my mother's a teacher and, of course, I, she's had four children. And so she was the first one who said to me, I think there might be a couple of issues, you know, we should have, we should see a psychologist and see what was going on. But um, in those days, Jules is 31 now, so back then. I mean, how old are your kids? So I've got four children. The autistic children are 20 and 16. Right. Well, back when Jules was diagnosed, he was diagnosed at age three. The, the, the A word was like a, almost like a death sentence. I mean, the A word was suddenly my son had become a plant in a gloomy room, you know, and it was my job to kind of drag him into the light. It really branded you. It was almost like saying you had cancer. Like it was really damning. So it's so wonderful that we've moved on from those dark days. And then, and then it was really hard to get help too. There was hardly any help. And, of course, the government set up bureaucratic speed bumps to slow down a parent's progress. Uh, and, they, we, you know, they encouraged you then to put them in a mainstream school. And to me, putting a kid with, with autism in a mainstream school is as pointless as giving a fish a bath. You know, they really need specialist help and focus and attention. And the classroom was too loud. And, you know, most kids were striving at, at school to learn, you know, math and grammar. And Jules was just striving to make himself invisible. And he screamed, every day I took him, he screamed and kicked and ca- and 
had a meltdown every day for I don't know, 10 years. And I used to take him oh to school gosh. and then I'd come back and just curl up in a fetal position on the ground and just go and oh, hyperventilating because he, hate, he hated it. It was just so, it was, you know, I always think of autistic, how autism must feel some of the time, you know, the Edward Monk, the scream, where everything's too loud, too bright, too vivid and so confusing. So a school, a classroom, well, that's, yeah, it it's must just be torture, I think. So, yeah, it was really, really hard. I think about sometimes how if we have, you know, like when I was diagnosed with Crohn's disease, you're then given a pathway. You're then given all the information that you need to know about what it is, this condition that you have. And you're sent on your merry way, but you kind of have a sense of what you're doing and where you're going. Mm-hmm. Was there access to any information at that point for you as a, the parent of an autistic child? Not really. I mean, I think you go through various stages. I went through various stages. The first stage I went through was denial where I bankrupted myself seeing every medical expert on the planet. Uh, you know, I hate to think how many doctors' children I've, I've now put through university. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then the next stage you go through is probably um, a, a grief, a bit of the, a bit of the, you know, you, and no, I think the next stage you go through is guilt, where your guilt gland throbs the whole time because I kept thinking, is it, was it something I ate? Was it something I drank? Was it that? one glass of wine in the final trimester, and if only I'd feng shuied my aura like Gwyneth Paltrow, I wouldn't have an autistic child. And then after that you go through grief stage where you, you grieve for the child you don't have and, um, and, and that you feel a bit sorry for yourself around that time. I did anyway, and I probably drank too much Chardonnay. <laughs> and then mm. eventually you just start to think, well, this is the unique little person I've been given and I've just got to do my best by by them, by him. And, you know, and what, what Jules has taught me, he's taught me to be more compassionate, I think, but he's also taught me that there's no such thing as abnormal, normal and abnormal. There's ordinary and extraordinary. And people on the spectrum have a sort of literal, lateral, tangential logic, which is truly unique and interesting. And I remember when experts were saying to me that I'd have to put Jules long-term in a home because he wouldn't function in society, I kept thinking... Yeah, but he's, I find him so fascinating because he lost, I don't know if this is typical, but he, he was very he, took, he was very bright as a little baby. You know, he, he talked early and walked early and he had all these, he hit all, I kept thinking, oh, my, I've got a little genius on my hand. He kept hitting these, these developmental milestones early. But then at about 13 months or so, it was like his computer crashed and suddenly he lost his language, he retreated into himself, um, and, and, I, and it took me another three years to get him to talk again. You know, he, he had to have speech therapy and all that sort of stuff. But when he did start talking, he started asking me the most interesting questions. You know, he was like, I was chopping onions one day in the kitchen and Jules came up and tugged on my skirt and I looked down and he said, Mum, if onions, what did he say, if onions make you cry, are they vegetables that make you happy? I thought, what a great question. And then he's like, well, what's the speed of dark? And, I mean, on and on and on, all these questions I couldn't answer. But I kept thinking, this kid's really bright and interesting. And, yeah, of course, what I've learned now is is that a label is nothing more than something on the side of a jam jar and that a normal is a setting on a washing machine. 
but it took me a long time to get there because there just wasn't any any sort of encouragement or support about just accepting him for who he was and letting him be his best autistic self. It was always always about trying to either cure or contain him. And I, I think that has yeah. changed now for sure. But, you know, it was pretty demoralizing. Yeah, I think it has changed. But I'd actually, let's just um, pin that, drop that for a minute, because actually even in the last week uh, I run a support group for families of autistic girls and even in the last week, I had a message from someone saying, oh, there's a really good um, piece of work they're doing in America and it can really change the autism and kind of take it away. And um, and I thought, wow, we're still, yeah. we're still in that place. And for me, you know, my children are fabulously autistic. They're wonderfully autistic. And, yeah. uh, and our family is far from being <laughs> neurotypical, uh, all of us. Uh, and so therefore our, our kids kind of fit right in. But I do think for parents, especially at the beginning of their journey, yeah. at the beginning of their journey, like you said, you were just like, I just took him to loads of doctors. It's just that sense of, I need to make this easier for my child. And this yeah. is going to be so difficult for him or her or mm. them. And, um, and I think that that's where it becomes problematic when those groups do approach you because I get those approaches every now and again you know could we do some work with your child and I'm like no hell no I want them to be even more autistic please thank you well I think you know it's it helps to 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 think with diagnostic hindsight you know we know that Mozart and Einstein and Orwell and Van Gogh I mean and these are brilliant people so if they cure autism that means we'll also lose our you know, obsessive scientists and our incredible composers and all of that. Having said that, if I could take the anxiety away, I would because it's really, really crippling. And I and I hate to see Jules when he's in a state of anxiety because I can't soothe him. And and that's that's the one area of autism that I think is deeply, deeply distressing for autistic people, but also for their carers because. It's like an existential angst that you can subdue with with um, chemically, you know, but but they'll have it for life, you know, this anxiety. So I sometimes think if we could lower the anxiety, yeah, you yeah. know, a lot of that anxiety is coming from having to live in a neurotypical world. Sure. If we could know, just and, think and outside, if we could think outside the neurotypical box, exactly, that would be wonderful. Yeah. But unfortunately, society yeah. doesn't think that way. Yeah, yet. We're working on it, Kathy. We're working on it. Yeah. Uh, so talk to me about parenting. How did, because you also have another child, don't you, who, who's not autistic. Yeah. Georgie. So how did you, how did you work your parenting? Well, all, I used to worry about my daughter. She's two years younger, that she, she would be missing out because, you know, Julius sucked up so much of the oxygen in the family because he needed so much care. You know, he was going to the Tavistock Centre three days a week. We were having speech therapy, we were having occupational therapy. You know, there was a lot going on all the time. But all the research shows that the siblings of autistic kids grow up to be incredibly well-rounded, incredibly um, self-contained. They're not selfish. They make fantastic friends because they've always valued the friendships outside the family. Um, 
and, and they're just they because they've grown up in a family where there has been sometimes trauma and uh, and um, difficulty. It make, has made makes them very compassionate. So they grow up to be incredibly well rounded, well balanced adults, generally speaking. So you don't yeah. need to feel guilty about the siblings of of, of your autistic kids because um, all the research shows that they actually. Uh, become very grounded and and warm and uh, empathetic um, adults. So that's good to know. Um, yeah. yeah, as long as we teach them that it's okay to take up the space. Yeah, and as long as you teach them it's okay to take up the space, absolutely, that's right, yeah. So, yeah, um, what else can I say about I think the other really, really hard thing for in the early days with the diagnosis is because, as you say, it's a maze and you're trying to find out uh, as much information as you can. Maybe you find out from other parents, but you've got to be so many things. You've got so many hats. Yes, you have to be the yes. medical expert. You have to be the psychologist. You have to be a yes. bouncer because they get bullied and beaten up at school. You've got to be the educational expert. You've got to be, you know, so many different different people and it's absolutely exhausting as well as fighting the government to try and get some funding to help them get into the school you want so you know it is a bureaucratic nightmare and and the bullying is something that it that upsets me the most because I remember when Jules was about nine he came home from school one day with a sign on his back saying kick me I'm a retard and <gasps> saying, oh my gosh, mum, and the kids are calling me a retard. Am I a retard? What is a retard? And even that to use that word now, as a mother, you might as well have ripped my heart out of my chest, thrown it on the ground, and stomped on it. And of course, it makes you incredibly overprotective. And I've always been overprotective, you know. And when, you know, when he was a teenager, I'd never let him out the door without a list of instructions longer than war and peace and, and enough. <laughs> <laughs> set up a comfortable wilderness homestead, you know. But the, the the quandary is how will you know if they can ever cope in the outside world if you never let them out into it? So you have yeah. to let them out into it, but just try and equip them in the best way you yeah. can. Yeah. I just follow mine on their iCloud. How do you? <laughs> Oh, I, I know where they are at all oh, times. Yeah. I'm, I'm like a spy. Like a commando, you know. I'd say, yes, of course you can go out by yourself. And I'd be in camouflage fatigues, you know, scurrying <laughs> along behind the cars, crawling on my elbows up the street to just make sure he was safe and okay. So, yeah, yeah. there's parents. I mean, I just think all parents of autistic kids should just get parenting medals because it is so much. Agreed. And, and you sort of, no one ever pats you on the back. I mean, we should have a podium once a year where we step up and they go, here is your parenting medal because you're a medal. Yeah, gold every year. Oh. So tell me something. Were you raising your children with a partner at this point? Yes, 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 yes. So what was that like? Because sometimes I know with David, my husband and I, it's taken us, we shift at different stages. We, we take different speeds. So I, I grabbed stuff very quickly. I was like, right, that's it. We need to completely flatline what we've been doing. Let's learn a whole new way of parenting for these children. Um, and David was like, no, we're going to stick to the old way. They need boundaries. They need, you know, and that, that for us, for about a year, we were on totally different pages. Yeah, yeah. It was really difficult. Well, you know, the, sadly, um, the instances of depression and divorce and unemployment 
in in families where there's autism, uh, it's really, really high because of the added stresses and strains. Um, And that was the one thing I didn't like about um, The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime, which I loved the book and everything, but the mother left. Mothers never leave. Fathers leave often, I hate to say, but mothers don't leave. So I could never really warm to the, the project because of that reason. I thought it was a betrayal of all the mothers I know who, who you know, soldiered on on their own. Of course, there are some yeah. great dads, but many dads do do leave. It's too hard. And I think we find I'm, in we find in our group sometimes what happens is mum the mum is leaves their job. Yeah, well, um, and so they then become full time carer, yeah. and then dad has got to work doubly hard, yeah. so feels much more disconnected from the home. Yeah. Comes home, and and obviously his partner is going, "Come and help me! I've had twelve hours of this all day. Please help me!" And of course, their relationship then becomes very strange. Yes, I think, I think that's, that's right. I mean, and I I I had to pull back on my career big time with Jules because there was so luckily I write so I could work at home. And I could make yeah. my own hours. I was my own boss. But I gave up TV presenting. I had a good career on television, but I couldn't travel. I had to give up um, travel writing. I had to give up all sorts of broadcasting things I was doing and also book tours around the world because I couldn't be away. So yeah. my, I did my career. had to shrink and I just concentrated on the writing because it was portable. I, I, you know, many novels I wrote in the waiting room of the Tavistock while Jules <laughs> Yeah. Which is what I'm doing exactly that right now right. <laughs> in the same place. Exactly. So you, you just have to adapt and, and do the best that you can. But it's, it is really hard. It is, yeah, it's no doubt about and, it. And then thinking about parenting an adult, because your, your parenting never stops, does it, for mm. any parent? But, you know, for us perhaps it's slightly more intense. So now that Jules is a big grown-up man, what's your parenting like now? Um, well, of course, I'm post-menopause, and what happens post-menopause is that, is that your estrogen drops, which is your caring, sharing hormone, and your testosterone <laughs> comes up a bit. So you get a little bit more selfish, a little bit more bullshit, a little bit more like a bloke, actually. And, and all my women friends my age are now, you know, they've cut the psychological umbilical cord with their kids. They're travelling. They're, you know, swinging off a chandelier with a, with a toy boy between their teeth. <laughs> And they're, they're kind of liberated, but of course I will never be completely liberated because I'm still Jules's main carer and his confidant and all of that. So I can I can leave him for much longer periods now because he's a 31 year old man and he's got support. He's got a wonderful carer he has for 15 hours a week, and she can go on set with him when he's filming and all those kinds of things, which takes a lot of the burden from me. And I'm trying to take his trainer wheels off. I've got him a little flat now and he's going to try living there and learning to do his own cooking and all those good things. But it's a really slow process because he's dyspraxic as well, which means sequencing is very hard. So teaching him, you know, even just doing basic domestic chores, if you tell him three things to do in a row, he can forget what the middle one was or the first one. Like it's very, very slow parenting, slow teaching, even though he's so quick yeah. and so bright that his praxia yes. holds him back in that way. So, you know, it's just repetition is the art of teaching um, because, of course, I worry endlessly about what will happen to him when, when I'm dead. And this is what yeah. the parents of autistic kids, you know, it keeps you awake at night. Will he it have survival skills? And you don't want to leave 
um, I don't want his sister to be burdened with his care. So he has to learn to be independent. Um, and, of course, and the other thing, parents fall into the trap um, when you have autistic kids of doing too much for them because it's faster, especially they're dyspraxic and you have to explain everything slowly. So you do everything for them, but then long-term that's a disaster because you know, they're still on their domestic, you know, L plates. <laughs> it's like a gradual walking away, isn't it? Yeah. Well, you're not walking away, but just I think sometimes there are, there are things that my children can't actually do, so I have to do those things. Yeah. But it's recognising the point and looking out for the point at which yeah. actually we're two years down the line now, so perhaps... Yeah you could start booking your own train rather than me booking your trains. Um, And those, but when you've always done it for them, I think it's hard for parents to just go, oh, does my job have to shift? You know, we're, and and, and actually if we've given up a lot of life in order to care for our child, it's, I think it can be a moment of having a bit of an identity crisis for some parents. I mean, maybe different for you and I, because we both work, but for parents that have actually like don't work at all, I think that can be really hard. Well, in in I know you want to talk about the books later, but in The Boy Who Fell to Earth, I wrote a mother. It's about a single mother raising a child on the autistic spectrum. And I wrote that for other parents just to let them know they're not alone. It's like a manual saying this is what to expect, but it's funny. I made it as funny as I could too because, you know, dear God, we need a laugh. And also a lot of raising autistic kids can be funny because you never know what they're going to say, you know, socially. Yeah. I swear. Brilliant. I sweat more than Donald Trump doing a Sudoku because I never know what, what will come out of Jesus. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he'd be the world's best talk show host because he, he asked these, these kind of really intimate questions and because of his condition, because he's autistic, no one could be rude to him. They'd have to answer. But, yeah. But getting back to what we were saying, why I raised that was to say the mother I wrote in that book is a single mother raising a child on the spectrum, but she's using his autism as a to, to, so she doesn't have to engage with the world. She's almost in mummy martyr mode, and and it takes and there's a there's a love interest in the story who says to her that um, she, she's the one who's actually got special needs, and in a way yeah. because you know she she's she's got to let him go. She's just got yes. to let him find his own feet, and but she doesn't have an identity without that. You know she that he's her ex, excuse. So I think that there is a bit of that that does happen. Yeah. Um, and that's that leads rather nicely into your latest book, uh, Till Death or to Mame, isn't it? Or a little yes. like Mamie, like Mamie. do us part. Yes. <laughs> because you are the other side, yeah. Tell us. Tell us about that. Oh, well, there's this is a funny it's a funny book I wrote to just because I thought, have we ever needed a laugh more? You know, for God's sake, two years of pandemic. So I it's a it's a it's a well, just quickly, it begins with a mother. Uh, she's a 60-year-old mum and she's a teacher and she's driving to school and she hears on the radio that someone, a man's been taken by a great white shark. And she knows it's where her husband swims. So she tears down to the beach and she gets out and she's just realising it is her husband who's missing. She's just starting her grieving process when another woman turns up, 50-year-old Jazz on a, a 50-year-old Tish, I mean, on a um, motorbike. She's a jazz singer. And she thinks it's her husband. And they quickly realise they're married to a bigamist and he's disappeared with all their money. So it's an odd couple comedy where they buddy up to chase their money around the world. But there's an autistic, Gwen, the teacher, has an autistic son who's in his late 20s 
and they've never really found their connection, you know. But he comes into his own now because he's very good at cyber sleuthing. So they have ah. to track their money down and he's one step ahead of them all the time helping them. So I, and it was a joy to write this character because I, I love to show autistic people, you know, coping brilliantly in the world and actually having like their superpowers on that they can do yeah. because of this incredible quirky um, and high IQ so many of them have. They, you know, this can be an incredible asset. So it was really fun to write an autistic male character who was so clever and so um, and was helping his mother so much um, and putting autism into such a great light and how they found their, their, their deep love for each other through, through helping each other. So that was really fun to write, yeah. So when you're writing, do you are you thinking this would make a great TV film or film and and we could cast Jules in that role? Oh, all the time. <laughs> I wrote this Me role. too. Yeah, I wrote this role for him. <laughs> Just creating jobs for my children, yeah. <laughs> Keeping it in the family, you know. Absolutely. But I would say to anyone who's raising a child on the spectrum, I think the two only bits of advice I would give one is to build up their self-esteem because all day they're told they're wrong, they're stupid, they're out yes. of sync. So their self-esteem sinks down kind of lower than Kim Kardashian's bikini line, which is, you know, quite low. <laughs> and, and the other thing I would say is feed their obsessions because many autistic people are very obsessive. You know, they've got OCD yeah. a lot of the time as well. Um, but, but it doesn't matter what it is, if it's igneous rock formations or, I don't know, Tibetan nose fluting or Amazonian, you know, moth wing fluctuations, whatever. <laughs> you never know where it will take them. And, I'm, I mean, I'd, I'd love to know how your kids got into acting, but my son wanted to do acting classes and I was like, mm, how do you put the artistic into autistic? I couldn't quite see it. But then he said to me, but, Mum, I'm, I'm acting every day. I'm acting trying to be normal. I thought, what a great line. And I went to watch him and he's acting. I enrolled him in an acting school at Regents College in Regents Park and they took autistic people, which was really helpful and, and, and very, you know, broad-minded and open of them at the time. And I used to go and watch yeah. him and i think, you're really good. And then I thought, oh, no, it's the mum goggles. You know how you see everything through the yeah. love filter? Oh, yeah. But then yeah, he won. they're about to win Oscars all the time. <laughs> but then he won a few little prizes and then he, he got cast in a couple of little films and then he got that a big part in in, um, in Holby City playing an autistic character. And this, I think, as far as I know, it was the first time that an autistic actor had been cast to play an autistic yeah. character. Yeah, he's the first. And it really to help take it, the stigma out of autism because I mean, it's, it's more useful than a million dry documentaries on autism because, of course, the audience are emoting with him and relating with him. And he had, and Holby said he's such a, it was such a great, happy family on set. And he had the brilliant um, Catherine Russell playing Dr. S uh, Serena, Serena, uh, was it Serena? Serena Campbell. And then he had Gemma Redgrave as, as her lesbian love interest. And he couldn't have been in safer thespian hands and having these two wonderful act, act, actresses but also human beings to, yes. to sort of keep him, to make him look good. And they're all, we're all really good friends now, you know, I adore them both. 
So it was a very, very happy experience. But sadly, Holby's come to an end. But he's just been cast in Midsummer Murders, which is exciting, <laughs> playing a murder suspect. So, but like you, I want to start writing writing vehicles for them because producers just don't think outside the neurotypical box often enough. Mm. So. I think also I know that. Uh, my children talk about the lack of representation, mm-hmm. uh, not ever, ever seeing themselves in a book or on screen. You know, my children are also mixed race. So to actually, when you've got different intersections as well going on, to, to never see yourself represented, yeah. it's very hard then to imagine what you would be when you go out into the world if you've never seen yourself represented anywhere out there. That's right. Well, Which is why our, our children are breaking ground in that way. Yeah, yeah, you know, absolutely. My, my... Sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, talking about, you know, being part of diversity, I think also women over 60 <laughs> can be put in that category yeah. because 85% yeah. of people on television over 50 in Britain are men. So women Wowza. also get put out to pastures. So, yeah, I can commiserate with autistic. We disappear. We disappear, don't yes, we? We get yeah. the cloak of invisibility. But the, the thing is, will we use that cloak for good or for evil? <laughs> I haven't said <decided> it <laughs> I love it. So just tell me something then. So when Jules was in school, I'm thinking about what it's like for my children. I had at the age of when they were one Thailand, when Thailand was 16, got the job on Hollyoaks. But just before that, I was thinking, what will my child do in the outside world? Yeah. Like, how how does it work? And I've got the same thing now with the next one, who's now 16. I'm thinking, what happens when they leave school? Did you have that anxiety? Oh, gosh. I mean, less than 15% of people with autism are in the workforce, which is a much lower inclusion rate than other um, different yeah, our study said 20, but, yeah, yeah, it's really low. It's really so, low. You know. Yeah. And yet, you know, we know that with their particular um, idiosyncrasies and their obsessions, they, they, you know, in very many professions, they would be such an asset with their yeah. detail and their obsessional memory. You know, Jules, Jules is obsessed with acting. He knows if, if, when, we, when he meets actors, like we met, he met Kenneth Branagh with me one night. He told Kenneth Branagh, Every single film he'd been in, every ad he'd been, every voiceover he'd ever done. He knew more about Kenneth Branagh than his own mother. And Kenneth Branagh's <laughs> one of his top favourite actors. You know, when he meets yeah. tennis players, he tells them every match point of every game they've ever played. So if there weren't computers, you know, Jules would be in such huge demand because of this phenomenal memory he has, the things he's interested yeah. in. At the same time, if he goes to the corner shop, he won't remember what I asked him to get. But if it's something he's interested in, it's extraordinary, this memory bank. So, like I don't even have a diary. I say, Jules, where was I on the 3rd of June, you know, 2002? Okay. He will know where I was, what we were doing and what I was wearing. Like it's in- incredible. Wow, sir. That's, that, that's incredible. But, of course, not autistic people have those skills, but it would still be good to see. One of the things we're doing here, this podcast is being made by Auticon, and their work is about placing right. autistic people in with jobs. So in one way, they, are, they have a coach that helps the autistic person, but at the same time, the people go to the client, the, the, the person who's employing uh, 
the autistic person and then help to prepare them for yeah. this is what it's going to be like when your autistic person comes in to, to work. Uh, and I think we need more of that, don't we? We need that kind of working both ways. So it prepares the autistic person, but also prepares the company because I know, I don't know what it was like at Holby, but with, with Hollyoaks, they were brilliant. They sent everybody on autism training. Wow. They put all different you know, all these different measures and adjustments in that then made it so much easier for Thailand to go to work. Not only did it make it easier for Thailand to go to work, Thailand began to change. So then Thailand could take more on, could take more demands because Thailand knew that their, their needs were getting met. And I think too often what happens is if our needs aren't met for anybody, but particularly autistic cohort, if your, if your needs aren't being met, your anxiety is raised and then your toleration levels go down. So you can do even less. Yes. Absolutely. Well, that Hollyoaks sounds absolutely brilliant. Uh, Holby didn't do any training as far as I know, but they were just such a lovely operation that everybody was so accommodating. And they loved having Jules on set because he's so funny and because he, you know, yeah. he breaks down boundaries and he, and he made them feel really good. So you know, he, he, it was really exciting. But what he wants to do next, I mean, I'm happy to say, like, they would never make Rain Man now, starring Dustin. No, thank goodness. Yeah. Thank goodness. But Jules wants, he said to me the other day that he, he thinks that Hamlet was autistic. And I said, why? And he said, well, obsessional behaviour, you know, um, not very empathetic, didn't notice that Ophelia was about to kill herself, um, anxiety, so anxious about everything all the time. He said he wants to play the first autistic Hamlet. And I was like, well, that would be amazing. But could you actually take on that huge role? And, of course, his memory's so phenomenal. He can learn the dialogue. But also because it's doing the same thing every night. Yes. People find that really, really boring. He would find that really, really reassuring. So I'm hoping that maybe that can be a project he could get his teeth into next. What was it like for him getting an agent? Well, he used to be with Access All Areas, who are a terrific agency, and they, um, you know, they help lots of new, neurodiverse actors into parts, and I, I love them. But then he got sort of poached by Luke Chowdhury, who's really great and loves Jules and finds Jules really funny, and is really pushing to get him to get him to meet directors and producers, and he's totally on side. So. Um, we've got high hopes for him. <laughs> if we're putting our kids into the workforce, one of the things we have to explain to their employers is that they do have this um, candor. Because I could imagine a job interview with, with Jules where the, the employer says, well, just well, so what do you think your, your worst qualities are? You know, what, what, what's, what do we have to worry about? And he could say, well, you know, um, the fact that I tell the truth, that I'm very candid. And I I can imagine the employer saying, but I don't think that's a weakness, that's a good thing. And, and, and Jill's saying, well, I don't get him stuff what you think. <laughs> you know? He could say that. You know? <laughs> so they, yeah. have, they have to, people who employ autistic people have to understand that they can seem, sometimes seem a bit taciturn and a bit, a bit caustic, but there's just that they're really, really honest and they've got so much candor. And I really value that. I love that. And Jules I is love that. very charming too. I mean, I'm lucky that he's very charming and funny. So even when he's being honest, he does it in such a disarming way <laughs> that it just makes people laugh. So I'm, I'm lucky in that, in that respect, yeah. Just to finish off then, Cathy, because I feel like you are the sort of 
the auntie of the autistic parent world <laughs> because you've you've got your 31 year old child you know a lot of us are bringing up children that are a bit a little bit just just behind that you know uh and i really appreciate your honesty in regard to how hard it was 31 years ago because yeah. you know we think it's really really hard now oh. we do we still are on our knees trying to access help um but hearing your story, it makes me appreciate, you know, things have moved on. Yeah. Um, well, girls are now getting diagnosis. Yeah. Like there, there's all sorts of stuff that wasn't even happening 30 years ago, really, just, or just, rarely happening. Before you ask me the question, I just remembered something on that note because when Jules got expelled from preschool because he put the teacher's shoes in the bin or something and, you know, he got expelled and, and, and I knew I, he had the diagnosis at three. He was probably about four then. So... I was, and I was, when he got expelled, I was so upset and I came out of the schoolroom and I was, you know, just just thinking, what am I going to do? Where do I go now? Where can I get him educated? How do I, why can't someone help me? I saw another mother having a little quiet cry over under a tree and I thought she's also had a diagnosis of autism or something and I'm going to go over and reach out to her mother to mother. And I went over and said, are you okay? You know, what's wrong? And she's sobbing her head off and she said, it's Tarquin. He's four, by the way. He's not taking to his French. And I was like, oh, my gosh. And I thought I wanted to get in my car and run her over repeatedly until death. And yeah. I thought a jury of mothers <laughs> of special needs kids would acquit me. Yeah. Because I thought. Literally, Cathy, I have been in exactly that situation when I had a child on suicide watch and had to stand at the school gate with the other mums and I love those other mums but honestly they were like I'm so worried because I'm gonna have to get a private tutor in order to to get them through this SATS exam and you're like everyone's thinking about SATS exams and I just want my child to live I know I I hear you I absolutely hear you just like Please, honestly, if they don't get spellings right at the age of five, really just please sweat the small stuff. Right. Really. I'm with you. I'm honestly. Totally with you. You and I yeah. don't have to buddy up and write something together. Yeah. Oh, my gosh, yeah. <laughs> so tell me something. So I want to know, like, for thinking for our listeners, we've got lots of people of, with every different role around autism. So we've got employers of autistic people. We've got parents. We've got lots of autistic people themselves listen to this podcast. Um, what would you like to see happen? Let's, let's fast forward 10 years. What would the world look like for our kids if they were growing up in 10 years' time? What would you want to see, oh, particularly with in regard to getting jobs and stuff? Yeah, I just want people employers to, as I said, think outside the neurotypical box, you know, and just give our kids a chance to shine because they will shine. They're just given a chance, the opportunity and a little bit of tolerance and understanding. You know, they yeah. they can give back to society in the most wonderful way. But unfortunately they're, they're I don't like to call it a disability, but their difference is invisible. Like they don't have a white stick or a wheelchair or whatever. Um, so people often expect too much from them too quickly, um, but it given yeah. too much, too often they end up living on a bedsit and benefits, but living in a bedsit on benefits. But they could, as I said, give back society in the most interesting and innovative and extraordinary ways if we should just give them a chance to shine. 
Kathy Lett, thank you so much for today. Thank you so much for listening. We really hope you enjoyed this episode of Autism in Conversation with Auticon. This episode was recorded in April 2022 and contributors are using community preference language at this time. Recording and production was at Strathmore Studios in Clerkenwell, London, and it was engineered and edited by Billy Godfrey and music was by The Lethargies. If you'd like to know more about the podcast, would be interested in applying for a job as an Auticon consultant, or would like further information about how Auticon can help support your business, please visit auticon.co.uk. That's all from us this time. Bye for now.